love fragrance but have sensitive skin? Introducing Skincare's Take on Fragrance, Clean Reserve H2O, a new eco-conscious collection of water-based perfumes that are gentle, hydrating, and long-lasting. A proprietary technology, Clean Reserve H2O, Hydrotech harnesses sustainable and renewable ingredients in a formula that is gentle enough for sensitive skin. An exciting alternative to alcohol-based fragrances that is crafted for those who want more from their perfume. A splash of hydration, no irritation, and an exceptional, long-lasting wear. The collection features eight new scents and is available at Sephora. Follow at cleanbeauty underscore collective for more on this new wave in fragrance. Hello, and welcome to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host for today, Emma Sandler, beauty and wellness editor at Glossy. Nearly four years ago, the health and hygiene conglomerate Reckitt spotted an opportunity to help establish the next generation of consumer brands through its own corporate venture capital arm called Access. Since its launch, Access VC has invested more than $50 million in over 30 startups, including sexual wellness brand Mod, men's wellness brand A-System, and supplement brand Beekeepers Natural, across pre-seed and series seed rounds and beyond. Rakesh Narayana, General Manager of Access VC, joins us today. Rakesh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Emma. To begin with, why did Reckitt set out to form a venture capital firm? It's a very good question. So if you look at the history of consumer product companies like Unilever and Nestle and Reckitt and P&G, and if you also look at the the ecosystem of innovation that comes from all of these companies, what you find is that despite the fact that there are you know trillion dollars worth of CPG companies out there, there isn't a lot of interesting innovation that comes out of very big conglomerates. Right. In a, it's almost strange to say that in a world where there are more dairy CPGs out there, Oakley still came from a startup in Sweden rather than it came from a big uh, CPG company. Right. So there is obviously a large difference and gap between big companies being able to do disruptive innovation and real cutting edge innovation, which comes from startups and you know universities and laboratories around the world. Um, so. Corporate venture capital, in some ways, is meant to bridge that gap, where where we accept that large companies are exceptionally good at making $100 million brands into a billion dollar brands, but perhaps not so good at making brands which uh, don't exist into a $100 million brand. So the zero to one game is something corporates are not very good at. Um, So we built Access VC originally because of two reasons. One, to close that innovation gap in CPG and to invest in emerging founders and in emerging brands and companies. But second, also, if you look at Racket as a company, we exist in a lot of categories which... Uh, where Racket is probably one or two of the large companies that exist. And there isn't a lot of other brands out there. Sexual health is a good category. You know, there are, you know, if if you can think of sexual health brands, maybe there are two or three people can think of. Unlike, say, a beverages brand, you can think of 50, I'm sure. Right. So uh, categories like that, there is a lot of appetite for emerging entrepreneurs to build companies in, but they weren't able to find the required funding for it. So we also built it to close the funding gap in in those spaces. So two reasons. One, close the innovation gap, and two, close the funding gap. 
So what is the mandate and focus area for Access VC in that case? Uh, Look, if you ask our CFO, uh, he will always tell you that it is to return capital to our shareholders, which obviously remains one of our most important objectives. Um, But we also have a few other equally important objectives. The second is to be able to accelerate uh, emerging brands in niche consumer health spaces. Right. So sexual health, we spoke about spaces like uh, incontinence is another one. It's a big category. But if you go to Walmart or CVS, what you find are brands which are from the 60s and the 50s. But actually incontinence affects, you know, all adults, I think 80 percent of adults at some point in their lifetime. Um, so it's a, it's a major category. We invested in a, ca- uh, in a company which does uh, uh, which helps kids solve constipation and sort of digestive health issues. Again, big problem if you're a parent and if you've got kids, you know, you people really worry about these things. Um, so there are lots of lots of spaces there which we wanted to invest in and, and help bring innovation through. So that was second part of our objective. And, and third, you know, is that if you look at consumer health care, um, particularly products you find in, in shelves, um, a lot of these, the, the, the buyers of this is the mums in the family. Right, if you think of Mucinex or Vicks or whatever, mums stock up the pantries, uh, and and therefore, you know, become sort of. I think in the U- U.S. today, seventy percent of all CPGs purchased by women, and women are the deciding factors. Uh, but what you also see is there's a massive funding gap in female entrepreneurs who want to build these kinds of businesses, and and the venture capitalists who are obviously traditionally men from banking backgrounds, and sort of lack of diversity is a big issue there. So we wanted to close a few of these gaps, uh, which we have done. So, you know, as, as a VC now, we have a very high bias on diversity. We have a very high bias on um, categories we invest in. And we have a good financial return, which, of course, makes everybody happy. Rakesh, what is your own background? How did you arrive at overseeing access? Ah, uh, it's a good question. And it's a, a story almost of now 10 plus years. Um, I am originally from India. Um, so I grew up there uh, most of my uh, adult life, uh, raised by a single mother. And a big part of my journey was, you know, when I'd left India when I was about 17 uh, to London uh, to, to do my university. I got a scholarship here and I'd moved here. And London since become become our home. I, we, I, I'm married and I have a two-year-old daughter now. Um, we, sta- we started this, uh, uh, this journey for me. It started a long time ago when I finished sort of university and I'd got into CPG as a, as an industry, right? Um, so I'd spent some time in consulting uh, at the Boston Consulting Group, but really after that, I was, I was spending most of my time in consumer goods and consumer brands. And one of the things I've always loved about it as an industry is it is the most tangible, tactile industry that you can you can ever work in, right? Like, you know, every day, every day from the, the time you wake up to the toothpaste you use to like the, the when you open your refrigerator, every part of your daily life is influenced by consumer brands. And there is something so grounded and tangible and tactical about it, which I've always loved. Um, I've also then, you know, I, I found a real love for uh, consumer insight and advertising. Uh, one of my uh, uh, early moments of of enjoying this industry was in the London. The, we, everybody commutes on the tube, and when you uh, when you sit on the tube, there are billboards you can take out on the tube. And to watch an advert you build as a marketer go on the tube is really one of the most rewarding experiences you can ever have. 
so you know, yeah, I I've really grown up in this industry and I've enjoyed it, and and did sort of traditional marketing uh, on on large brands like Durex and Mucinex and so on and so forth uh, for the first uh, part of my career. And then more recently, I moved into becoming the chief of staff for the CEO of our group. Um, and from there, you know, I'd, I'd learned this about this, uh, this gap almost when cutting edge innovation and large companies. And we wanted to work on how do we bridge that gap. And an easy way for me to do that was to get into uh, venture capital. And at the time, we didn't have a fund. And um, I pitched the idea to to our, uh, our CEO at the time, uh, and, and it, it got approved. And we had started originally as a early stage uh, pre-seed fund uh, where we would write $10,000 checks uh, along with an incubator um, to emerging founders. And I always tell the story of when we first did that, um, there was a long debate, and frankly, it was an argument between our CMO and a founder who was building a uh, a marketing tool using the power of voice on podcasts and Spotify and things like that. Um, and and I remember the argument, and this was in the early days of podcasting, uh, where the argument was like, actually, you know, everybody's moved on to mobile phones and everybody's moved on to smartphones, and TikTok is getting bigger, and you know, no one's ever going to care about just audio as a format. Um, and and the founder was challenging our CMO, and and you could see there was this really almost heated debate going on between the two of them. And then the rest of us are just smiling and just enjoying this debate that that was happening. Where like you know this really like twenty one year old is challenging somebody who's like been in the industry for thirty plus years. Uh, and you know at that point the CEO goes like you know this is really worth it. We should definitely do it because it's a, it's it's very strange thing about large organizations where everything becomes so professional and so sort of uh, clean and sterile that you sometimes lose a bit of the uh, the the edge of of authentic conversations uh, and i think that's what interacting with startups brought to us in the early days and so we started that program and the uh, seed program became successful and we start evolved that into what is now accessvc where we make obviously meaningful investments into companies and we support them on their journey all the way from early stage all to to all the way to sometimes to ipo it's funny when you were mentioning the advertisements on the london tube there's a trend on social media where whether it's a celebrity or maybe a, a model or an influencer when they have an out of home ad and you'll see a video of them going to see the ad or maybe there's an instagram post later where it's them standing next to their billboard it's something that's a very universal feeling but i would imagine equally amusing if marketers had a photo of their ad on the subway and them standing very proudly next to it absolutely absolutely there is no greater pleasure and you know as much as we're all sort of lovers of technology and virtual worlds, etc., there is nothing like seeing a big billboard, uh, you know, with your uh, with your brand plastered in the back and standing next to it. It's it's a truly unique feeling. Yes, it's the same as journalism. Seeing my name in print in a physical publication <laughs> is a special joy. Um, so, in what ways might a corporate venture firm differ from a traditional? VC firm? And do you think this distinction has any impact on the relationships between a startup and their VC investor? Look, there, it, is, it is a very distinct 
proposition to be a venture capital firm and a CVC. And anyone who pretends they're very similar is, you know, is really off their rockers. And I, I, let me explain explain why. Uh, First, you know, most venture capital firms have multiple limited partners, multiple investors, uh, and, you know, they pool capital and then they invest. So they are truly financial investment vehicles. Uh, they are innovators, they're cutting edge, they're all of these things. But at the core of it, what they are is they, you know, they're financial managers, right? Corporate venture capital, on the other hand, is is different in the sense that there is only one LP or a one investor, which is the corporate. And or most of the time, if not all, there is a very high intent to have good financial returns, but that is rarely the objective. Because if you think about the size of record, it's you know fifty billion dollar market cap company. You know our our fund is less than fifty million dollars. So our ability, even if we had fifty x stack at the fund, is not going to be tremendous on the corporate. So how do you then really add value to the corporate, and what's the reason for them to do it? So that usually tends to be very distinctive. A lot of times that is around being innovative, getting a. I always say it's about having a window into the future. And startups are really that, you know, they're a window into the future of mass retail. Um, and, and getting an insight into that window is, is really why a lot of these companies invest in co- corporate venture capital. It's also why we do it. Um, right? I think that's a, that's a first distinction, which is the objective of why you do it. Um, the benefit of that is on one side, you have corporate venture capital, which is in some ways is evergreen capital. So the whilst we want our funds to grow and you know our investments to do well, we are we don't have a five, ten, fifteen year window at which point we have to sort of return the money back to to investors. Um, and that that in consumer products especially is quite a blessing because unlike tech where you become super scaled super fast, but profit takes a long time. CPG is in some ways the mirror opposite where it's easy to become a profit, it, relatively easy to become a profitable company, but to become scaled is where the, tr- the challenge always is. Uh, and that, you know, to become a really like a Coca-Cola or whatever, you know, it can take 10, 15, 20 years uh, to get to that kind of scale, which is not, which is not the case in tech. So I think that's, that's one part of uh, the distinction. The other part is, is value add. Now, um, again, VCs had a lot of value in terms of how do you structure your companies? How, where do you raise more capital from? You know, if you wanted to have an exit, how do you manage that? And a lot of these financial engineering is a big value add most VCs have. Um, versus where CVCs do quite well is, for example, um, one of the companies we're working with is currently looking to get an FDA approval. Now, there are maybe a handful of people in the U.S., who can really help you with that. And I'm pretty sure none of them work in venture capital. Most of them work in large corporate corporates and they work in the research laboratories or in regulatory teams or something like that. And access to what I would say is very unique talent and very unique skill sets, uh, I think is also a big differentiator when it comes to C- VCs versus CVCs. Uh, so value add is distinctive. You know, expectations on timings on return is distinctive. And then the last um, and and maybe the the most important is corporates also invest with a understanding of that some of these categories that they invest in the, the corporate has an ability to become uh, a customer of these companies 
which can be quite interesting. So when we invest in mark tech and e-commerce enablement companies, etc., like we also have brands that can use these technologies. So not only can you be an investor, you can also be a large customer. And there's a nice network effect that creates, which is especially true for um, B2B companies. So with that in mind as well, that that insularity of being a corporate VC firm with some of the more like macroeconomic things that have been happening this year, the concerns in the U.S. of a recession. There have been some interest rate issues as well, inflation in different parts of the world. How impacted are you by those macroeconomic issues? We are equally impacted, I would say. I think the uh, the brands we've invested in are much more impacted uh, because a lot of these brands, when they're cutting edge, tend to be at a premium price point. And when consumers start to spend less, that affects their ability to grow and so on and so forth. Uh, so I think the brands themselves are, in, are impacted. Also, the cost of uh, building these brands and the cost of uh, retail and the cost of logistics and all of this has gone up over the, in the last 24 months. So um, our, our portfolio ha- takes, a, takes a real impact. Uh, what is good is I always think during times like this, uh, you know, a lot of the, the the brands will unfortunately not make it, but the few that make it will really go on to becoming the next Mucinex or Coca-Cola or whatever it is, right? Like the icons are always built during the recessions. Um, so I think in the, in that in that sense, it's a real test of fire. Um, and I think from our point of view, we're also much more cautious about where we deploy capital. Um, you know, we really look for consumer stickiness beyond just it's a trending category or an industry. We start to uh, be much more prudent about their logistics and their supply chain and their resilience uh, in where they manufacture and so on and so forth. Uh, so we are we also become much more prudent as investors. And I think, but however, what one of the lu- the luxuries we have as a CVC is we have the backing of a of a big mothership, if you would, uh, and that takes a lot of the uh, the immediate pressure to return capital uh, is 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 a little bit less. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with the rest of our conversation. Love fragrance but have sensitive skin? Introducing Skincare's Take on Fragrance, Clean Reserve H2O, a new eco-conscious collection of water-based perfumes that are gentle, hydrating, and long-lasting. A proprietary technology, Clean Reserve H2O, Hydrotech harnesses sustainable and renewable ingredients in a formula that is gentle enough for sensitive skin. An exciting alternative to alcohol-based fragrances that is crafted for those who want more from their perfume. A splash of hydration, no irritation, and an exceptional long-lasting wear. The collection features eight new scents and is available at Sephora. Follow at cleanbeauty underscore collective for more on this new wave in fragrance. You mentioned to me before a swords and shields approach to investing. Could you share more with our audience about what this is? Uh, yes, uh, it's a it's a criteria we always use when we when we debate uh, who to invest and who not to invest. Um, a lot of times, particularly in consumer products, when you make investments, you know, we say like, "Hey, why is this brand a good brand?" And the answer tends to be. 
oh, look, they're super sustainable. Their sustainability credentials are fantastic. Or they've got a celebrity influencer who's who's really taking it uh, taking it to the next level. Um, or they're very planet friendly or something like that, right? There's always the te- everybody in the team has a point of view on why why some company a company is good or bad. Um, and what we have over the years come to accept is there are a lot of features, for the lack of better words, uh, that are shields that protect you. Fr- uh, that is the minimum that is expected of you in the market today by a millennial Gen Z, Gen A consumer, right? Uh, you are plastic-free to the as, as much as possible. You are chemical-free as much as possible. You don't use preservatives if you're a, a beauty or a makeup company and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of minimum requirements today to become a new brand. People are forgiving of exactly these things of old brands, which I always find funny. Uh, so they would go to a supermarket and they would buy a brand which is 50 years old and uses preservatives and everything. But when it's a startup brand, they are so unforgiving. Right, like they expect it to be truly sustainable, so on and so forth. So we, that's the minimum expectations are what we call shields. Right, you need that to 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 be able to fight the battle in today's market. Then there are the swords, uh, and swords are what differentiate, I think, winners from the average. Right, um, and for us, swords are features in a in a brand that make it truly cutting edge. So it can be uh, their ability to get a specific target audience, right? Like uh, one of the brands I was mentioning earlier, they have a fantastic ability to target new moms on TikTok and really have a almost a cult-like following around them. And I think that's an incredible shield, if you would. Or even from a product point of view, uh, you know, I always say, are you the fastest, you know, most efficient, cleanest something? Right? Are you the if you're a beauty brand? Are you the cleanest beauty brand out there? So somehow to to strive for a edge in terms of your value set, I think is what we say as a is a is a sword, and I think that also helps you distinguish from a sea of sameness. So that's what we look at: swords and shields. Do you think it's important for consumer brands to have a strong point of view on something like? Is a good product no longer enough for a sustainable brand? Uh, it's a good question. Um, and we debate about this quite a lot. I think same as people, we live in a society where everybody's expected to have a point of view about everything. Right? Same way brands are now expected to have a point of view about everything and where they stand on anything from world wars to sustainability to you know, um, human rights, right? So every brand is expected to do that. Uh, but I think what is important in in consumer products is to go back to first principles, to realize that ultimately, if you're buying a coffee brand, you're buying it because you want coffee, right? And it's sometimes I find brands forget that and say they compromise on product quality or they compromise on taste or they compromise on sustainability, uh, but then are extremely good at, at certain things on like the values they have, et cetera, which is great. And I, I know I don't want to take away from it, but you can't forget the first job to be done, which is to be an incredible coffee brand, uh, right? So may, people might try you because you help, you know, kids in sub-Saharan Africa get access to education. That's wonderful. And that might be a reason why I choose another coffee brand over you, but it's never going to keep me there if your coffee itself is rubbish, uh, right? So that's the that's the balance people need to strike. What about the 
brands mod and a system, which our brands access has invested in. What drew you to them? What are what are their approaches that stood out to you? It's a good question. So I think let's start with a system company. Um, a system, the the founders, I always say, you know, is one of the first things that attract you to 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 these brands. Ollie and Josh, who, who founded the company, uh, really come from a background of design and creative, um, as opposed to from supplement manufacturing. And if you look at like a Walmart shelf, what you see is supplement manufacturers building brands, as opposed to brand folks and creative folks building a supplement company. Uh, so there was a big distinction there. And the and the benefit of that for them was they knew how to build a a luxury brand which people aspired to have. So if you if you go on their website, you can see in the latest uh, Warner Brothers movie, uh, Batman takes a system gummies, uh, or Bruce Wayne takes a system gummies, uh, because to to recover from his night out as Batman, right? And it's it's so aspirational and it's so cool, and it, the ability to do something so 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 fun and so in tune with culture. It's not something big companies do well, and it's not something very many brands do well, and it's something Ollie and Josh have been great at. Uh, the same way they've done so many partnerships, they, there was a time when you could fly uh, business in certain airlines, and you know they would give you the system gummies as a uh, as as one of the things you would try, uh, and so on and so forth. So they were able to build a premium luxury category within mastige of and a sea of sameness of supplements. Uh, which is which is something incredible that uh, only Ollie and Josh could do. Um, so yeah, that's why that's why we loved a system. Uh, and I think the second part of a system, which I'm I'm also a big fan of, is at no point and like all startups, they've had their real ups and real downs. No point did they ever compromise on the efficacy and the quality of their products. So they really stood by that. And, you know, they would never cut back on cost, right? They would cut back on marketing spends. They would cut back on how much logistics they spent on and so on and so forth. But they would never cut back on the ingredients that went into their products. And they stood by that ethos quite a lot. So you, a lot of their reviews always said, this product really works. And that's what gave them the most amount of pride. Uh, so that that was probably the other thing that that we loved about the system. Um Mode is a is a on the on the other other side of the category in some ways is a category which is still taboo in majority of the world. Uh, frankly, it's taboo around all around the world. It's just maybe less taboo in certain smaller sec- sections of the world. Um, and the way Ever has been able to really fight against that and really bring normalize the category of sexual health. Is, is something incredible, uh, right? So she as a founder has a lot of grit and determination to be able to, to speak about these topics and really challenge the status quo, challenge big brands uh, and really uh, be at the cutting edge, I think has been, been great. And the second part of it, uh, of mode that we, we've loved is their, their ability to really think about design, really think about, you know, um, if you think about sexual health products, it's hidden away in the cupboards. Right, it's in a there's a bedroom nightstand, and people sort of put it in the bottom drawer and just hope nobody sees it. But if you look at Maud's products, like they they look like hand soaps, like luxury Jo Malone or A soap or whatever, and and you know you could you could see their products being on a bedside shelf, and nobody would think twice about it. So they really brought normalized it, not just through sort of talking about it and and breaking the stigma, but also through design and aspiration and things like that. So uh, Eva and her team's ability to have 
brought something innovative to this category is is really really cool um and to, and so and so brave to do it as well um so that's that's what took us to a system what are other product categories that are exciting to you right now there are lots of exciting product categories uh maybe not so many great brands that have come out in those spaces um so one one space uh we're very keen and looking at is women's health uh as you know there is a lot of uh um, whatever is the equivalent of greenwashing in women's health. So everything's got a slap of women's health now on it, as opposed to the credible science around helping women. So I think we are really watching that space closely to see who breaks out in that space. Uh, so that's one. Metabolic health is another, uh, with obviously the, the rise of semaglutide and Ozempic and all of this. You know, there is a real appetite in the market for natural ways of controlling your blood sugar so you don't feel as hungry and you can really control manage your metabolism better so we're looking at that category uh, quite actively um aging population is another space you know again we're looking for breakout brands uh, it's it's a topic that we've discussed in so in a lot of length um because most of us are going to live 85 plus if you're born you know in the late 80s onwards uh, which means there, the the ability to buy products and the, the ability to want to live a happy, healthy life for as long as possible is, is super high and aspirations are very high. So, you know, who's going to build the next generation of brands there? So a couple of these spaces we're really looking after um, and, and hoping to find uh, breakthrough companies. Does the newness or cutting edge approach to these categories impact the way you evaluate brands, it can be difficult to look at things sequentially by asking if there's a big enough market when you're basically figuring out what people want before they know they want it. Uh, Look, totally. Um, I think the beauty of consumer products is there is always a big enough market, right? Like take aging population or sexual health, right? Sexual health is my favorite category to talk about this where a lot of people have said, oh, the market is not big enough. But that's not true. You know, that is literally all human beings uh, uh, on earth is the size of the market. So, you know, I've always found that very strange. Same with, you know, when we invested in in Begin Health uh, and kids going through digestive health issues. Uh, Again, is the market big enough? Actually, the market is big enough because everybody's a kid at some stage in their life and everyone goes through these issues at some stage in their life. I think people see market sizes driven by syndicated data what euromonitor tells you and you know how, you know what uh, what uh, what big data tells you but i think if you think about it from a very human centric way market size in consumer goods is very very high um i always um, make this joke to other vc firms that um there is more money going into kombucha than probably in any other CPG category out there. And I, and I probably guess that the market size of kombucha is extremely small, right? Like, and, uh, so, so it's, it's a strange, strange world we live in in some ways. Yes, I remember you telling me before about how Access doesn't invest in food and beverage companies, yet you're probably having more of those companies reaching out to you than any other category. Absolutely. Which is interesting because even I go to the supermarket now and I look at the beverage aisle and me as a consumer I'm I'm quite happy to see so many selections but it's also very overwhelming absolutely look and there is there's nothing wrong right as a consumer me too I also love finding a new sort of uh, a soft drink brand every other week and that's that's great but I just wish the same choice existed in other categories one um and the same level of 
people put the same level of care into these categories. So if you walk through the consumer healthcare aisle, you actually find very few emerging brands out there. Uh, a lot of it is because they're highly regulated categories, etc. But a lot of it is also because as an entrepreneur, you wake up thinking somehow kombucha, but not, you know, the next cold and flu medicine. Uh, right. So I think there's also a gap there. So uh, hopefully that will that will change as, as more funds like uh, like us emerge. So in that case, what role do you think investors have in advancing forward underserved categories? I look, a massive role, a very, very big role. I think investors in some ways, getting an investment in some ways is is the first goalpost an entrepreneur has even before they get customers. Um, you know, and 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 it's uh, the way the world we live in. In some ways, is people always talk about the valuation of companies and the raises they've done, and nobody ever talks about the revenue of the companies. Um, so investors have a have a big encouraging factor in in ha- seeing more entrepreneurs come into the space. One, and I also think investors have a responsibility in some ways, as you say, about being able to envision what the future is. Because that really is the job, right? Like part of it is, in, you know, investing in interesting companies, but part of it is just being able to imagine, hey, this piece of science that I see in a lab that looks uninteresting and unsexy, how can that be the next big thing? And to be able to connect those two dots, I think is a big part of the, the investor uh, jobs to be done. Um, so I think the more investors are able to do that and the smaller risks they take in the space will, will really bring, bring a lot of cool companies out there. What about in the case of underrepresented founders, typically women and people of color? You mentioned earlier how women make up a significant portion of purchasing power in CPG, and yet they're not receiving a lot of funding for their own CPG brands. Is that something that is at the forefront of either your philosophy on investing or when you're actually looking at potential companies to invest in? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we, when we started out, said was we want to represent the companies we invest in, right? So the companies we invest in are in consumer healthcare are that are 70% purchased by women. We want to look like our company, our fund needs to look like that. Um, w- most of the companies we invest in and we actively look for are B Corps, we wanted to become a B Corp and, and we have um, very recently. Uh, so a lot of the values that we expect brands to have, we also want to live up to those same values and frankly be held up by those same standards. Um, so one of the things that's, that's, that's really helped us is, you know, we've stuck to those guns from sort of early, early days. So now our fund is, you know, highly diverse. So majority, over half of our uh, founders are now uh, women. Uh, one third of our founders are uh, from a BIPOC background, um, so minority uh, ethnic minority founders. Uh, and all of that is really great from a statistics point of view, but frankly, also from a business point of view, because these founders are so ambitious and they are so hungry to prove themselves, uh, which all, and, and they don't have a chip on their shoulder in some ways. Uh, and that makes them even more wanting to be successful and build great things. So I, I think in that sense, it's really helped us and it's proved, uh, proved our model right. Um, but I also think it's a big bias that investors have, right? A lot of the luxury we've had is because we've had a big corporate back us. We've been able to take a lot of these risks, uh, which I think some of the investors maybe are a little bit reluctant to take. Um, and, and it's easy to put that to 
to just saying, hey, look, it's because VC is not diverse and that's why these are problems. But I think a lot of the problem lies within diversity of background rather than diversity of uh, gender or sex or uh, ethnic minority or anything like that. Because in some ways, if you all come from the same school uh, and from the same neighborhood and from the same university, your thinking tends to become relatively similar. But I think when you have people from all parts of the world, uh, from all that walks of life really come together in a fund, I think then problems become more interesting. You have really different perspectives. So I think it's also important for funds to think about diversity in a, in a bit, bit more of a holistic way um, and for funds as well. Absolutely. Rakesh, as we look out to the rest of the year, even into 2024, any thoughts that you want to share with us about either what Access is looking at or what your thoughts are on the general venture capital space? I wouldn't dare to comment on the general venture capital space. Uh, but look, we are um, continuing to make investments in, in consumer healthcare and hygiene. Um, we're looking for incredible founders, even if they're first-time founders. In fact, sometimes I prefer first-time founders because they don't have any of the baggage of uh, uh, of the past, uh, and 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 the and the sort of shining eyes sometimes are, are the best to build businesses. Uh, so, and you know, and we're we're investing in categories and people who really are committed to making money and becoming successful, but really committed to making a positive impact on the world. Um, because I think that's that's how you build legacy. So, uh, you know, any founders out there listening, very, very happy to to chat to you guys. Um, and all, in terms of venture capital, look, I think it's definitely a hard market. There's no getting away from it. Um, interest rates are super high. So venture capital, the expectation of venture funds to return more is, is higher than ever, which means the pressure that the startups get is higher than ever. Um, so it's, it's definitely a tough market. I would say for founders, it's important to therefore be very selective of who they go with and take capital from people who have um, enough depth of knowledge and expertise, but also depth of uh, uh, funds available to be able to come back to them and help them through through tough times. I think what's also interesting is um, a lot of, especially in the US, there are a lot of fantastic service providers who are becoming funds. So agencies who are also investing into startup brands, you know, uh, creative firms who are also investing into companies. So there are alternative ways to raise capital, not just VCs, which they should also be looking out for. And I think it's, uh, it's an important, uh, important way to build a business. And look, and there's nothing wrong with old school DIY, right? Um, I should not say this as a venture capitalist, but you know, every time somebody asks me about building a CPG brand, I always say, if you can build it yourself without taking any external money, even if it means it takes more time, you should really consider it. Because CPG is one of the few categories in the world where you can still build a very large business and entirely own the business yourself. Um, and I think that there's, no, there's nothing wrong in building a business that becomes $10 million in 10 years especially if you own 100% of the business. So um, I think it's also cool to, to be grounded and authentic and build brands slowly. Um, so I would also consider that as an option if I was a founder. Wonderful. Rakesh, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure to chat. Likewise, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Glossy Beauty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us out. 
And of course, visit glossy.co slash beauty for even more coverage of the beauty industry. Sarah Brooke Finer will be hosting next week. Bye. Bye.